there is a box of Twinkies in there. And not just any Twinkies, but the last box of Twinkies in the whole universe. And believe it or not, Twinkies have an expiration date. And pretty soon, life's little Twinkie gauge is going to go empty. Tallahassee, from the 2009 movie Zombieland. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. As the title implies, we are discussing the difficulty in finding the rare and elusive petroleum-filled Twinkie. Okay, perhaps not. Although that would make for an entertaining discussion. No, our, our discussion today is even more fascinating. We are talking about the theory of peak oil. The peak oil theory has a long history that, while coined in the 1950s, it's, it's rooted in studies and predictions going back to the late 19th century, and, in short, proposes that oil, as a limited and exhaustible resource, will reach a point of peak discovery, production, and, ultimately, availability at some point. In other words, we will eventually figure out where all of it is hiding within the Earth's crust, and when there's no more new oil to be found... Eventually, the curve for the amount we're pumping out will take a turn as well, and it follows that it's all diminishing returns from that point onward. Now, before everyone starts picking sides on the issue, drawing lines in the sand, and taking a defensive position in preparation for ideological war, take a deep breath. This isn't some discussion on big oil and alternative energies, or environmentalism, or pollution, or big government, or economic and trade cabals. Now, those are all um, great conversations in and of themselves, and we'll have those in the future. No, but this time, this is discussion about the peak oil theory itself, which has been and is still used as a weapon in the arsenal of all those areas mentioned. We're going to explore its history, at least in brief, along with its impact on how we think of oil as a commodity. We can also look into contrasting viewpoints and new priorities that may deserve better focus on modern day. At the end of the day, the goal is to have introduced you to the real reason that the peak oil theory had such an impact on the public imagination, and continues even today, that of the scarcity principle. More pointedly, it seems like the scarcity principle, results in outcomes for oil that you wouldn't expect, nor would it benefit everyone using it as a marketing tactic for their particular issue. But before all that, let's first get out of the way the issue of why this discussion even matters. Why do we even need to talk about peak oil? 
how is it at all conspiratorial? How is the belief that oil will be in short supply some sort of secret revelation hidden from the masses? Everyone knows that, right? Ah, but that's just the modern perspective. And I caught myself doing that too. Remember, now we think of oil as a, as a necessary evil, right? Who cares when it peaks? We all know it's diminishing and an exhaustible resource. So why all the worry about peak oil? But that's today's perspective. Current generations have a focus on the future of new and alternative fuel sources. More focus is on powering our ever-growing technologically connected world. But that hasn't always been the case, at least not in the minds of us, the general public. Back in the day, oil was the life's blood of forward progress. It was going to fuel the advancement into the future. It was the milestone marker toward a post-industrial world. Before we ever flipped on a nuclear reactor, before we ever thought of uh, charging a battery with a wind turbine, Heck, before many people in the late 1800s ever thought of flipping on a light switch and turning on a light bulb, we were burning oil to make the world move. It wasn't evil. It was a new world of energy. Now, of course, politics has already fully commandeered the issue of oil production. You know, when we think of it, it's, it's of course the cause of all of our environmental disasters, climate change, pollution, and greed. We don't view it in a positive light. We want it gone and replaced. It's depicted as the gooey sludge monster of nature, and our lust for it is just an addiction of exploitation and destruction. Fortunately, other than our gas-guzzling monster mobiles, we don't use petroleum that much anymore, right? <laughs> well, it is also the source of fuel for our advances and our conveniences. Remember, it it does light our world, and it warms our homes. It gives us plastics and textiles. It gets us to school and work. It moves the planet. It powers civilization. Now, here's a short list of everything that is made from or with petroleum products. Abridged, of course. Solvents. Diesel fuel. Motor oil. Football cleats. Ballpoint pens. Floor wax. Sweaters. Sports car bodies, tires, dishwasher parts, caulking, faucet washers, food preservation, antihistamines, cortisone, dyes, life jackets, TV cabinets, car battery cases, yarn, toilet seats, linoleum, plastic wood, rubber cement, candles, hand lotion, wheels, luggage, football helmets, toothbrushes, CDs, balloons, crayons, pillows, artificial turf, model cars, movie film, car enamel, golf balls, refrigerators, fan belts, cold cream, dentures, anesthetics, enamel, heart valves, vaporizers, combs, clothes, antifreeze, guitar strings, shampoo, water pipes, nylon rope, tennis rackets, speakers, denture adhesives, roofing umbrellas, mops, tool racks, skis, percolators, putty, dashboards, vitamin capsules, curtains, motorcycle helmets, cassettes, bicycle tires, dresses, boats, nail polish, golf bags, toolboxes, petroleum jelly, antiseptics, basketballs, purses, deodorant, pantyhose, rubbing alcohol, shag rugs, epoxy, insect repellent, fertilizers, fishing rods, ice cube trays, electric blankets, fish boots, trash bags, roller skates, paint rollers, aspirin, awnings, ice chests, paintbrushes, sunglasses, parachutes, dishes, artificial limbs, folding doors, soft contact lenses, shaving cream, toothpaste, gasoline, of course, ammonia, drinking cups, hair curlers, bandages, cameras, telephones, tents, detergents, footballs, eyeglasses, safety glasses, shower curtains, surfboards, house plants, dice, glycerin, synthetic rubber, lipstick, hair coloring, oil filters, paint, electrician tape, linings, refrigerant, footballs, shoes, soap, clotheslines, transparent tape, shoe polish, perfume, fishing lures, insecticides, and bearing grease. Whew. Did you get all that? It's no wonder we're certain that we'll use it up sooner rather than later. But let's get into peak oil. What is it, right? If we're going to talk about peak oil, we have to understand it. Even for those of you that remember peak oil being in the news, you might be surprised how poorly it was explained in the media. I mean, I certainly thought I was familiar with the theory until I jumped into the research for this episode. So, let's look at it. I mean, peak oil, as we said, it's, it's this theorized point in time. 
when we reach this maximum rate of extraction of petroleum, right? When the production is just hit its point. Now that's not the stopping point. That's just this, this apex, this peak, this maximum of a curve. The concept of peak oil is often credited to geologist M. King Hubbard, whose work in 1956 on a paper really first presented a formal theory. Before then, it had been talked about as early as the late 1800s. Now, as a quick aside, remember when we're talking about oil, that we're going all the way back to the 1850s, when the first oil derrick der was put into place, right? When the first big oil find occurred in Pennsylvania. That's when the oil boom started. It didn't take long before people started questioning, how long is this going to last? Well, that Hubbard Peak Theory basically says, according to Wikipedia, that for any given geographical area, from an individual oil-producing region to the globe as a whole, the rate of petroleum production tends to follow a bell-shaped curve. And then choosing that particular curve, it determines a point of maximum production based on discovery rates, production rates, and cumulative production. Remember what we mentioned earlier, this isn't just a matter of, of production rates arbitrarily peaking and then curving downward. It's based initially on the idea that discovery rates are going to curve downward first. That's the primary driver. We're going to quit finding it. And that there is a direct correlation with basically an offset that once the discovery goes down, production's going to go down. The Hubbard Peak Theory is based on this observation that the amount of oil under the ground in any region is finite. And therefore the rate of discovery which initially increases very quickly since the 1850s onward, must reach a maximum and, of course, turn and decline. When he proposed this, Hubbard basically said that in the U.S., their production was going to peak in the 1970s. Peak oil did, at least initially, seem to be right on target, with Hubbard saying that Somewhere between 1965 and 1970, production was basically going to cap off in the U.S. I think he's around somewhere around 10 million barrels a day for production uh, that, uh, you know, it, it, it would it would taper off. Well, that proved to be pretty accurate at first blush in the 1970s. Yes, the curve did go down in the U.S., and production started to diminish. Now, this wasn't overall global production, but it, uh, it it was certainly indicative that he was on the right path. And uh, it, it turned down for upwards of 30 years. But here's the key to go back when, uh, to go back to, when we go back to Hubbard's explanation, remember, remember Hubbard's peak was a prediction that the production from oil for conventional sources would peak in the U.S. around 1965 to 1970. Now, here's the problem. Conventional sources and conventional techniques did not take into account all of the other oil that was out there, nor of the advancement in, in oil drilling and oil production. 
we ended up seeing actually in the 2000s a tremendous spike in oil production in the United States after this this downturn. Hubbard was very specifically talking about that sort of oil that you you think of when you think of oil production, right? The the oil rigs that are up across the fields and have to drill down and they pump through until next thing you know there's this wonderful shining black shower all over the place and then they cap it off and they start pumping it. And Hubbard, I don't know if if he just simply didn't anticipate or if it was incorrectly reported uh, as as something that was considered. Yeah, Hubbard did not seem prediction did not seem to take into account uh, the the technologies of oil production that came along later. And these are some of the you could call them criticisms of the peak oil theory, but it's more of a I don't know, a weakness to the theory. Because as things advanced, as we introduced things such as a directional drilling for the oil, fracking, which of course has its own questions, you know, regarding the environmental impact, still fracking as a technology absolutely skyrocketed the availability of this oil. Not to mention the other oil sources that were out there. We've got shale oil in the Rockies, and then Canada is full of those oil sands. Now, that stuff is what you might call really dirty petroleum, you know, and, and, and messy sources. You have, to, you have to cook that oil out. You've got you've to extract it from those sources. And when Hubbard was theorizing uh, peak oil, well, those may have been considered so cost prohibitive that they weren't ever going to be feasible. And and perhaps at the time, he was right, at least for a long stretch. But again, because there's not that flexibility in the prediction or in the way it was reported, now peak oil has to make up ground. Now, peak oil, as a theory, sure, it has its weaknesses, it has its, its, its proponents, and it has its detractors. But apart from people simply arguing on peak oil and when those peaks will occur and how feasible the curve is, what should be factored into it. There are some other issues there that I don't want to get into too much, but I want to at least put out the theory. Peak oil um, is is largely built on this, this model of, or I should say it's thought to be built on this motto of the, the biogenesis uh, basis for oil and that it's that it, it is a fossil fuel and this idea that because it's a fossil fuel and because that means that all of this oil was created uh, from from organic material you know that was half a billion years ago living in the origin oceans largely largely microbiological, uh, small sea plant life, things of that nature that died over millions and millions of years, settled in the ocean uh, at a time when the environment was ripe for a much thicker uh, biosphere of, of all of this tiny uh, microscopic life and, and, and biological life in the oceans that, that once all that was done, it, it settles down, it works through the uh, the ground, then of course through tectonic processes, gets pushed down and closer to the mantle, 
the heat, the pressures, and voila, you've got oil that's then pushed up, seeped up through the crust uh, and towards the surface for us to find. Of course, the crux with that is that it takes an awful long time. And the argument is that we don't have the amount of biological material or biolife necessary that that is going to produce at any any quicker of a speed, probably much slower. And that process takes so long that we are uh, we're simply going to pull it out of the ground faster than the Earth could ever replace it. Now there is a there is a a, a counter to that, and it's that of the abiotic oil theory. And abiotic theory is is just as it sounds is that it's not based on uh, biological material. It doesn't involve that process of of decayed collected biomass of sorts that's then exposed to pressure and and moved down towards the crust and then moved back up. Abiotic oil theory is based on observations of hydrocarbons existing in other areas of the solar system and throughout the universe. The idea that that um, it's been observed on hydrocarbons. Now, not what you're thinking of. It's not oil in the ground, but other forms, methane and and, and other gases and, and other hydrocarbon elements have been identified on Europa, uh, on Mars, uh, and, and just simply out in, in the solar system. Well, this means that these things are, are elements, right? These are not requisite of having biological life on those planets. Abiotic oil theory would then tell us simply that oil comes from deeper in the earth. It actually starts somewhere between the core and the mantle, the upper mantle. And it takes those elements and it produces the oil from then. And then it is pushed up slowly through the crust and up to the surface. Now, on, on first blush, the, the, the idea of abiotic oil theory sounds like a, a great means of arguing against this whole uh, fossil fuel argument of an exhaustible resource. And, well, it's, it's abiotic. The earth is making it constantly, and it doesn't need all of this organic life or organic material in order to produce the oil. Uh, the problem I see with that, though, is that the abiotic process still requires a ridiculous amount of pressure, a ridiculous amount of of energy, and a and and a ridiculous amount of time. It's not a fast process, regardless of which way you look. So, to me, that's why this discussion on peak oil isn't a debate uh, of the the biological versus the abiotic origins of oil it's just it just takes a long time and yes we're using a lot so either there's already enough there for us to use for a good deal of time or regardless of its origin at some point it's going to run out but aside from the the abiotic oil theory looking at peak oil one of the things that has replaced it is this argument that we shouldn't be worrying about production because as technology uh, for extraction has advanced, we've seen that, that more and more that threshold gets pushed out, right? Every, every five to 10 years or so, it keeps getting farther and farther out that, oh, well, the peak is coming. Well, it'll come then. Well, eventually it's going to happen. Uh, but 
really, some argue that the focus needs to be in peak demand. Now, peak demand is simply the argument that, that at some point, our demand will outpace our production and outpace our, our, our reserve. Now, you could say you're arguing, you know, two sides of the same coin there, that demands can outstrip, but it does change the focus. It changes the focus towards uh, the con- towards the consumer, considering what oil is used for and where it's going, and what do we need it, and what alternatives there are. Now, obviously, that works much better in today's environment and mindset. But regardless of whether our focus is on peak demand or on peak uh, production, the idea of peak oil is probably still a concept that it, that encapsulates all of it. It has evolved, sure, since Hubbard's uh, introduction, but it it's still ultimately an argument for the idea that oil will have a point of diminishing returns. And that's ultimately where we get into our our thought for this episode of why peak oil resonates. Why did it hit so hard? Uh, and, 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 and how does it affect us from a, from a public perspective, from an ideological perspective or a psychological and sociological perspective? That's where the scarcity principle comes in. Now, writer Kendra Cherry, in a 2017 article on explorepsychology.com, the article titled simply, What is the Scarcity Principle? poses the question, why is it that When we learn something is scarce or limited, we suddenly want it more. Psychologists refer to this tendency as the scarcity principle, sometimes referred to as the scarcity technique or feigned scarcity. People tend to place a higher value on items that are scarce while placing a lower value on items that are plentiful. Now, that sums it up nicely, don't you think? I mean... The article itself pulls from information provided by the American Psychological Association, discussing scarcity and, and highlighting the works of a Princeton psychologist, Eldar Sh- uh, Schaefer. Now, Schaefer ultimately concludes that scarcity and the scarcity mindset consumes what he referred to as mental bandwidth, leading to self-defeating actions because their minds are basically less efficient under this scarcity mindset. Now, to understand the scarcity principle, rather than go through lists of economic case studies and sociological and psychological analysis, we simply needed to explore what happened with that most favored and nostalgic snack cake, the Twinkie. Now, I'm calling this the Great Twinkie Conspiracy of 2012. Many of you will remember, in 2012, Hostess, the Hostess brand and Hostess company that owns the Twinkie, that has been producing the Twinkie for nearly a hundred years prior to that point, announced that they were going out of business. They were shuttering the doors, and the Twinkie, the Twinkie of old, the Twinkie of yore, would no longer be sold. That was it. It was done. The head muckety-mucks and head honchos of, of Hostess came out on to multiple talk shows with dour, forlorn faces, 
uh, you know, the look as though they'd been crying for hours, struggling to to figure out how they were going to announce this to the public and yet go home and look at their children, you know, in the eyes, came out and said with straight faces, the Twinkie is gone. That's it. It's done. Well, it was bigger than any bank run that you could see during any economic crisis. It was a run on the Twinkie banks. Every grocery store filled to the brim. People raiding uh, every every outlet for the Twinkie that they could. Boxes flew off the shelves. Carts were filled. Retailers put limits on the number of boxes available per customer. The prices started to increase. And eventually, the shelves were stripped bare. The Twinkie, that had, mind you, actually not seen much sales growth in years because of the changing dietary habits and mindsets of of the public in general uh, for this sort of just junk food snack cake stuff. Delicious, mind you. You know, I'd have eaten six already by this point in the episode. Uh, People had moved, had simply not done much of that, not to mention the other variety and the options that weren't even originally available when Twinkie came out. Uh, all of the sudden, the the people that ran to the stores after this announcement saw that, that notice that the limit of three boxes per person, per customer, grabbed three in anger that they were limited when they would have scarcely bought one, and probably none, had they not seen that sign. They may have wanted to come in thinking, well, I'm just going to grab one for posterity's sake. But the moment that they saw that there was someone was stopping them, this truly was limited. They were being kept from the Twinkie, from their memory of childhood. They bought as many as they could. Well, yes, as promised, Hostess shuttered the factory, and the Twinkie stopped being produced and stopped being distributed. The boon was wonderful. It cleared out all any sort of uh, remaining inventory and stock for the company, which is probably pretty good for you know a going out of business sell to just boom clear out all of your your stagnant inventory. And the Twinkie remained uh, remained booming. The Twinkie appeared on sites like eBay for thirty thousand dollars plus a box. It was irrational. It was illogical. And it was a wonderful send-off for the Twinkie. Here's the problem. Less than a year later, in 2013, it was announced with much fanfare that the Twinkie was coming back. Yes, that's right. That Twinkie, whose death was so mourned, who was so worried, cultivated a, a, a... frenzied, irrational reaction, panic even, and run on the stores was going to be back on the shelves. Yep, in fact, Hostess found a way. Another company magnanimously decided to buy the rights to the Twinkie and other of the product lines for Hostess. And actually, in truth, pretty much most of the Hostess products were sold off to other companies. Uh, to be to produce, uh, and and of course the Twinkie was no exception. Well, it was reboxed, rebranded, and 
returned. And there you have it. The Great Twinkie Conspiracy of 2012. Now, why was it cons a conspiracy? <laughs> because even before they announced that they were shutting the doors and that production was stopped, they were already fully aware that they were going to be selling off these product lines and these, these product rights to other customers. The Twinkie was never going to go away. In fact, I would bet that the real reason for the announcement was to make sure that sales boomed right at the very end and bolstered the book value so that any prospective buyers that had been a, that approached them and shown interest suddenly saw exactly how valuable this was so that the selling price was at a premium and it worked people that hadn't thought of buying twinkies in years had bought tons now, <laughs> hopefully all that meant is that there was just a nice gorging of Twinkies. You know, there's wonderful theories we could talk about, too, with the Twinkie. I mean, lots of urban legend around that as well. Um, but, you know, as you'll remember from that scene in Zombieland that we quoted at the at the beginning of the show, it, unlike popular uh, belief, they do have an expiration date. Uh, there are still people that I found pulling out Twinkies on YouTube that they bought back in 2012. And it's a fun little reminder of exactly what happens. Well, all of that that happened and everything that we just talked about with the Twinkie is the example, the perfect example of the scarcity principle. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it is. I hope the Twinkie incident is talked about in every economics class there is, uh, to explain the scarcity principle in those moments from a social psychology uh, psychology perspective there's a tendency to place a high value on things that are perceived as rare and devaluing things in contrast to things that are seen as common and abundant right and like i said this is this is applied in even just everyday marketing you don't have to have something going out of business to react to the the sales marker that says that you can only have a limited amount that's a great way uh many companies introduce a product right new product limit two per customer three per customer now i don't know how many bottles of shampoo you buy when you walk into the to the grocery store but if you walked in to get one Chances are, when you see that um, that that sign that says something here is brand new, and you're limited to only buying three per purchase, well, something in your brain is going to tell you, I guess I better buy three. And how dare they stop me at three? I wish I could buy more. That's the scarcity principle, and it's been seen over and over again enough that it is absolutely a tactic in marketing it is applied when people are dealing with this from an economic perspective and it was certainly on people's mind when hubbard introduced peak oil now since we're talking about scarcity let's talk about patreon for less than a cup of coffee each month you can help support the show grow and in return you receive some very rare, very unique, and obviously very valuable patron-only rewards. 
such as access to the Patreon-exclusive show, Expanded Theoryology, where we go beyond the theoryology and take a deeper look at a lot of topics discussed in the show, as well as explore other areas and new ideas that aren't discussed on Conspiracy Theoryology. We have guest hosts and candid conversations. There's going to be new content each month, plus more stuff to come. In fact, right now, I'm working on some Patreon member-exclusive merchandise that will only be available for Patreon members. So, if you're ready to support the show, or just curious about what else Patreon has to offer, go to patreon.com slash conspiracytheoryology to check out my page. Now, I don't know if Hubbard thought he was he was uh, going to have that reaction, but... Um, but certainly others did. And when when it was reported, peak oil, with that scarcity principle now understood and in mind, it had it had a different impact. I mean, there were some that were probably planned. The oil companies used it to boost, boost profits and the value of oil. I mean, re- really, you know, go ask your parents or grandparents how much oil was when they were a kid. How much was gas to fill up the car? Now, how much was the heating oil? How much was the electric bill? All of this is tied to oil. And by the 1970s, it it boomed. Now, if you want to know why would you increase the price of oil, right? Why make it so much higher that people uh, couldn't afford as much or or wouldn't uh, use it? Well, it helped to bolster the power of the petrol dollar back in the 70s when the U.S. and Saudi Arabia made an agreement to use U.S. dollars for oil contracts. Now, the petrol dollar had come into play well before then, but it went through its, you know, it it went through its struggle. And we had the embargo back in back in the 70s with with OPEC. And so once that was worked out and the U.S. cut their deal with the Saudis, the petrol dollar was was set. And by having oil as a tremendously now limited commodity, now, uh, uh, you know, a rare and valuable item. The dollar was now a very valuable item with countries pegging their currency against the dollar. So there was clearly a geopolitical maneuvering. There was clearly a a global economic play that took peak oil. At the very least, if peak oil wasn't intentionally planned from the get-go as something that needed to be introduced, then it was a theory that uh, a researcher found, a, geo, uh, a geologist identified, and they said, this is perfect. And they turned it into a marketing tool that changed an economy, that established an economy. Now, okay, so that's fine. That's, that's the global play. But what other effects did, did the scarcity principle play in, in the public focus? Well, very specifically for the public... You could say that it backfired, whereas the announcement that, hey, we are running out of oil and will before you know it. This is a short-lived uh, indulgence, right, for us as a, as a society, as a civilization. Well, people didn't stop and say, eh, okay, well then I'm just going to simply stop driving. We need to get back to horses. We need to get back to, uh, you know, buggies. We need to get back to... 
steam. We need to do whatever we need to because this oil is going to run out and we need to get off of it. It's not what happened. It actually keeps the focus on oil usage. We actually, because we now valued and coveted oil, <laughs> we, we actually figured out how to use more of it better and more, you know, and, and, and smartly because our automobile usage didn't go down. No, we simply focused on more efficient cars. So rather than saying, okay, well, we've got all of these wonderful gas guzzling cars. Um, we'll just use those until we find an alternative. No, instead we stayed focused on, well, how can we make these, these petrol engines, these gasoline engines function more efficiently so that we can get the most out of the oil while we have it. Because mind you, it's like 50%, 45 to 50% of petroleum uh, production is used to make uh, specifically gasoline, petrol. So that's why you hear me focusing on cars, by the way. It increases that when you talk about other fuels that are being produced you know, for jet fuels and and uh, uh, diesel and all of those other things for, for commercial transportation. It goes up for, yes, all of, there's all of those other products that I'm talking about, but by far transportation fuel is the, the bread and butter of petroleum usage. So that's why when, when we stayed focused on it, we stopped thinking of it because we were so focused on getting as much of the oil. We wanted to maximize our usage of it. Right, because now it had that limited time offer available for a limited time. <laughs> we had a run. People now, because they went out and bought fuel efficient cars, felt better about using as much gas as they had before, perhaps more, because, well, I was getting more miles out of it. Well, I have a very efficient car, so now I'm going to commute every day to work instead of catching the bus, instead of commuting with others. There's no need to because I have an efficient vehicle because I am saving to the best of my ability on oil. I'm reducing my consumption. Well, sort of. <laughs> You're reducing your consumption based on an old model of usage, not on what you're now doing because the technology has improved. And it's the same thing that suffered, that peak oil has suffered uh, with, uh, you know, with its, with its predictions. The technology is improving. I mean, peak oil, it's a combination of scientific discovery, of political positioning, economic global maneuvering, and lots and lots of money at stake. You know, it was never meant to raise awareness and alarm for the public such that we might reduce our consumption or move away from oil usage and demand alternatives. Now, how do I know this? Well, <laughs> I don't, it, but it's a good guess. Hubbard, that guy who thrust peak oil into our vocabulary, <laughs> he worked for Shell Oil. Shell certainly wasn't trying to give everyone a reason to abandon oil usage. Now, peak oil, it was meant to drive up the perceived value and scarcity of oil in the minds of the public, which leads me to believe that someone knew all too well the concept of the scarcity principle and predicted what the real outcome would be, at least at the time. Remember, peak oil was hypothesized at a time when oil 
was a delicious Twinkie in the public eye. Telling people it would run out was tantamount to telling people that their favorite snack cake would be leaving shelves for good before you know it, right? Yes, that oil crisis in the 70s did temper fuel use. And, as we talked about, the U.S. went through a wave of adoption for these small, efficient compacts. But that was in the 70s. When Hubbard introduced his theory in the 50s, (laughs) the cars got bigger. I mean, the plastic goods became more widespread. Planes got bigger and faster. We just used more and more. Why? Because we better take advantage of it before it's gone, of course. It's just simple social psychology. Which I don't know about you, but it annoys me to no end that I fell for it just as much as anyone else. Now, I know oil is not completely unlimited. And whether it's born of that biogenesis or abiotic means, like I said, it takes a really, really long time to make. And it's not easy to get, no matter how much the technology advances. And it's going to run out at some point. That said, peak oil, it's more of a a doomsday cult prediction that keeps making excuses and finding new reasons that their predicted dates come and go and need to be moved further down the timeline. I mean, it probably wouldn't work as well if it had been newly introduced as a theory in the last, say, 20 years or so. Uh, Now... Oil is looked at with the same disdain that uh, an eight-year-old holds for a plate of broccoli. It, It wouldn't be so scary to first learn that the oil is running out now, because we're already looking for the replacement. This is probably why the focus is has moved away from peak oil and to that of that peak demand that we discussed. We're we're going to hear over and over how the consumption demand just keeps going up and up all over the globe. And that that is why we will run out. Even if production continues to increase, demand will outpace it. But all arrows point to the peak threshold for production continuing to move out as time goes on. You know, as the technology continues to advance and demand continues to lose ground to other sources of energy, our use, at least in some forms of petroleum products, are going to go down. Before we know it, and certainly before anyone is willing to admit that the oil isn't dry yet, we will have harnessed some new energy source, and probably multiple sources, and oil will just become one of many viable and prolific options. And by that point, well, all those powerful oil companies, cabals, and political puppets will have figured out how to make money on new energy instead of oil. (laughs) And by the way, we've had synthetic fuels for over 100 years, and production of those synthetics is only getting more and more practical. So, (laughs) to wrap that up, you know, the next time you hear that your gasoline-burning Twinkie is going to have to run out on fumes before too long because the gas is all going away, just remember that they'll reintroduce it in a new box the next year. Scarcity will get you every time. All right. Well, that will do it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. You can email me at contact at conspiracytheoriology.com or find me on the socials at theoriologypod. 
all the info can be found at conspiracytheology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.